The following sermon was delivered during morning worship at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith every Sunday on the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Midtown Manhattan. And now, here is our guest preacher for today's service. Friends in Christ, body of Christ, join me in prayer. Holy Spirit, grant us courage, grant us peace, grant us love. Fill this place with your presence that we might know God is here. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. I want to get one thing straight from the beginning. I mean, it's no coincidence that this, of all days, Pride Sunday is my very first Sunday to speak to all of you from the sanctuary pulpit. So if you don't know me or haven't already made the connection, and I think the timing makes it pretty obvious, I want to just get this out of the way. I'm pretty sure Scott only asked me to preach because he knows that I'm celebrating my birthday. <laughs> Oh, I'm so glad you laughed. <laughs> Sermon time. <clears throat> Do any of you have someone that you've never spoken to, that you've never met, that you feel you know intimately, that you feel even knows you intimately? Maybe it's an artist, a politician, a philosopher whose message speaks to you in this really important, really specific spirit-filled way. For me, it was Rachel Held Evans. Rachel was like a modern C.S. Lewis in her ability to capture the questions and the comfort that come with the life of faith. In her most recent book, published shortly before her unexpected and tragic death, Rachel tackles the question of a faith that's no longer so simple. She called the book Inspired, slaying giants, walking on water, and loving the Bible again. It's an apt title because she spends a lot of time exploring the question of how we are to reconcile our world, our fleshly experience, with a sacred text that is filled with spirit, overflowing even, pages bathed by miracle. Still, her book is a reminder that faith isn't about listening to a spirit who tells us that such things as giants exist, or that you too could step off that Wall Street-bound ferry and walk the East River. Faith isn't about that. Rachel reminds us that it's about listening to the spirit, not who tells us that giants exist, but that giants can be defeated. Through the Spirit, Scripture reminds us that although they don't look the same in every story and every circumstance, miracles can happen. And so today, we turn again to this old and beautiful and dusty and complicated collection of Scripture looking for inspiration, for evidence of the divine, as countless believers have done so before us and do so even across the world today. This morning, we turn to the words of Paul in the fifth chapter of his letter addressed to the Galatians. For freedom, Christ has set us free. 
Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If, however, you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit, and what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to prevent you from doing what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not subject to the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious, fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I am warning you as I have warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. This is the word of God for all of you, the people of God. I want you to know I'm a good Presbyterian now. (laughs) The frozen chosen as it were, but I'll always be a little evangelical too. And in that tradition, there's this helpful systems that help preachers measure just how well a congregation is tracking with a particular passage of scripture, how much, at least at face value, it speaks to them. As far as I know, there's no official name for this system, so let's just go with the Mm, scale. (laughs) It works like this. Read a passage of scripture to a group of people as I have just done and listen carefully to their responses as you go along. If you get a couple of head nods and maybe even a short mm, you know you're on the right track. So far so good. But if you read a passage and the response is a full-blown mm, it's going to be an easy Sunday in church. The words are breathing life freely, simply, and cleanly into the congregation. Now, as we've taken a quick peek into the words of Paul this morning, to be fair, we've essentially torn into an envelope marked First Class Mail, Churches of Galatia. And as we heard what the Apostle has to say, I imagine that parts of his message score quite highly. Others may be a little bit lower. And no... Your um scale isn't broken, and you do have one. Presbyterian scales are just reformed and very silent. (laughs) Isn't a passage like this one par for the course with the Bible? Should we expect it to unequivocally affirm everything we think, say, and feel? And what do we do when it doesn't? We've provided pew pencils for you this morning. We could all take those out, make careful edits in our bulletin, and submit them for review. 
We could abandon this one entirely. I could take this very large Bible here, flip to a new passage of scripture like Wheel of Fortune and see if we win big. Maybe this one will suit us better. What do we expect for reading other people's mail? And yet, because we believe that the Spirit speaks to us here today across the centuries in this old and dusty letter, we know that God has something to say. A few months ago, I stood out in the narthex, as I often do, to help, in, to help welcome any of you who might be coming into worship a few minutes later than you intended. That morning, about a third of the way through the service, Persis Luke stepped up to our font mic as one of our Lenten testifiers. As any gay person does, I perked up and paid close attention when I heard our community siren call, our beloved acronym. <gasps> she said LGBT in church. Persis spoke eloquently about her experience at another church in this denomination, even at really challenging moments. She spoke about when her desire to simply serve to be the hands and feet of Jesus required her to make an unfair sacrifice. Because of Presbyterian policies at that time, Persis was not free to openly identify as a lesbian. And freedom is a tricky business, isn't it? On Thursdays, looking at brilliant displays of color and light, many of us will peer down from our rooftop parties look up from busy streets and gaze across the river to commemorate the freedoms that many of us in America enjoy. But what does it mean to be free? What if my idea of freedom is different than yours? What if it's different than Paul's? What if freedom isn't as easy as I thought it would be? For Persis, Freedom meant choosing to humble herself, to love her neighbor the way that she desperately, earnestly wished that they would love and accept her too. In her own words, she said, I continue to show up and serve because although uncomfortable, I believe that the church is always reforming itself in an iterative way towards the likeness of Christ. I had to believe that. I chose to believe that God's plan was a whole lot bigger than debate. Please let that sink in. Persis was free to leave. Even at that time, she could have found a community somewhere on this island that would have accepted her, that would have accepted her and her partner, Nancy. I certainly wouldn't fault her if she had, and for many of us, that may be the best choice. To be honest, that's what I did. I left rather than attempt to reform evangelicalism and found refuge here among you all. But in her freedom, Persis stayed. In her freedom, she found the strength to choose love even when it cost her greatly. To choose generosity, gentleness. Now wait just a minute. Surely I'm not implying not on Pride Sunday of all Sundays that we ought not fight for inclusion. 
to stand firm in our freedom, as Paul says, not by assimilation, but by standing up for who we are. I'm most definitely not saying that. And neither was Persis. She didn't renounce her life with Nancy or lose a bit of her hard-earned freedom. Of course, this unfortunate situation created conflict for Persis, for Nancy, for their church. But still, she found her own way to embody faithfulness, self-control. What I want to highlight is that this idea of freedom Paul's talking about, it is so far from a simple choice between my way and your way, or our way and their way. It's so far removed from our stock of easy Sunday school answers. I'm saying that freedom, like any calling, presents us with a choice. And it's one of the most difficult, trying, pervasive choices we will ever face. Freedom begs the question, flesh or spirit? When we talk about the gospel, Sometimes it's helpful to specify whose version of the gospel we're talking about. I mean, even in the Bible, we have the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Mark, according to Luke, according to John. They're not in our sacred text, but the early Christian church had access to other gospels, like the gospel according to Mary. And in some ways, some of you might argue that this sermon is the gospel according to Morgan, I faithfully and prayerfully hope that is not the case. Once, I even read a book called The Gospel According to Oprah. You get a gospel. You get a gospel. Everyone gets a gospel. The thing is, good news looks different for everyone. We may all be talking about the same ideas, but each one of us puts a spin on things that makes it different. Paul's good news is that you're free that Christ has called you to freedom. And yet, even in that freedom, Paul isn't saying our work here is finished. Let's all pat ourselves on the back and head home early because we're free. Freedom isn't letting us off the hook so easily. Paul knows that good news, even freedom, is always complicated by our relationship to other people. Quoting the apostle, freedom is not an excuse for self-indulgence. To think only of yourself, to take care of yourself and stop there. Why? Because you have other people to think about. Because what we're doing here in this place, this is church. This is community. Because the freedom he's talking about isn't some sort of solitary choose-your-own-adventure where you're taken care of as long as you're free. Because freedom must not, ought not, can't just be about me or about you. The kind of freedom in community God calls us to is one that is all about going the extra mile. It's about knowing that none of us can rest in freedom until all of us are free. It is all about loving our neighbors as ourselves. If I were to stop here, we'd get out a whole lot earlier, and some of you might still be tracking with me. 
my sermon might still have some mm left for you. But I can't stop here. Because Jesus doesn't stop here. While most of us can get behind the idea of loving our neighbors, it makes sense, it's logical, it's good for the neighborhood, so it's good for me. What if we take it where Jesus takes it? What if freedom is all about to think beyond what's happening to me here and now, to serve beyond what serves me? What if it's the freedom to love even our enemies? so that in every circumstance we might choose love, joy, and peace, and other things like these. If you still haven't noticed yet, seen the barricades, taken a look at the rainbow on the bulletin cover, or caught on from my quips, today is World Pride Sunday. This past Friday marked 50 years since the Stonewall riots. That's what most of us consider five decades for the push for LGBTQ plus rights and equality. And of the countless marches, events, parades, protests, brunches, and struggles that there have been, this morning angel action stands out to me. Take a look at the cover of the bulletin You'll see an image of the angels with Romaine Patterson, the founder, right in front. You see, it all started when members of Westboro Baptist came to protest the trial of the men who murdered her friend, Matthew Shepard, a gay college student who was beaten, broken, and tied to a fence post left to die in a gruesome version of modern crucifixion. While the thought of a group of people traveling across the country claiming to be church, to protest the trial of a young man who was murdered in cold blood simply because he was gay, it's enough to make me lose my breakfast, to cry out from this pulpit in outrage. I'm stunned by this image. Forming a barrier of wings, the angels stand firm to block out Westboro signs, their slurs, their hate, and the other works of the flesh just on the other side. But the craziest thing to me is Romaine's face, her posture. In this clash of political and theological mindsets, this spiritual warfare she is shouting no. She's crying out no to impurity, no to dissension, no to strife. With her eyes closed and mouth wide open as she yells, there is no mistaking it. Her motive is peace. Her purpose is kindness. Her desire is faithfulness to whom and to what are true. The angels don't use freedom to fight fire with fire, hate with hate, flesh with flesh. Mm, they choose spirit. This idea of freedom isn't going to make anything easier. It won't make life simple. In fact, it's probably the opposite. Take another look at that old letter to the Galatians. 
Paul's left us what on first glance appears to be an extended list of behaviors that will ensure you won't inherit the kingdom of God. And some of them are easy enough to avoid. Idolatry. Besides my unending love of Sia, I think I'm good on that count. Sorcery. I hope Harry Potter doesn't count. But what about some of these others? Anger, jealousy, envy. I have to be honest, and I'm pretty sure if I'm not, from this pulpit, the whole thing will collapse. So here goes. I sometimes feel each one of those things just on my walk over. I pass by Upper East Side townhouses, and I'm envious. I look in the windows at Bergdorf Goodman, and I'm jealous. And I'm angry that I can't have those things. Is that all these lists are then? A quick way to determine whether I'm a good person, a Christian, a child of God? Is it really as simple as a BuzzFeed quiz on which puppy I am? I'm a chow. If not, what is Paul's point here? Listing for us 15 so-called works of the flesh and then only nine fruit of the spirit? Honestly, it's hard to say for sure. With such a difference in culture, in time, in language, it's not an easy or simple translation to know how Paul would have phrased this portion of the letter were it addressed to us two millennia later at 7 West 55th. Here is what is sure. The freedom to which Christ calls each of us draws us out of ourselves, away from our easy answers and beyond the existence that begins simply and ends with me. That's why Paul doesn't give us more than a beat to celebrate freedom. It's as if just as quickly he's told us we're free, he follows up with a warning. If we fail to use our freedom to love our neighbor, if freedom begins and ends with me, the works of the flesh will take over. We'll be more likely to hurt one another, to fight with one another, to let one another down, to lose one another in jealousy, quarreling, dissension, enmity. It's not like Paul doesn't want us to celebrate freedom or that he wants to reign on our parade. But time is of the essence, it seems, because for Paul, the gift of freedom has placed the church at the center of a conflict of cosmic proportions. While it's true, the specifics of this list would likely be changed were it written today, the message would be the same. Christ has freed us, yes. But there are two forces vying for control that are opposed to each other, the flesh and the spirit. Freedom's calling us every day, every minute to choose. Flesh or spirit. I know it sounds like the premise of the next attempt at a Christian summer blockbuster, but that is how serious Paul wants us to take our freedom. I, for one, deeply appreciate the serious side of faith, the melancholy inherent to Christian message. I mean, Ash Wednesday is one of my favorite days of the church calendar, 
And while it's true I'm sometimes a bit prone to reveling in the heavier messages, that's not why I love the smearing of ashes, the reminder of our mortality, the whispers of remember your baptism and be faithful. I love Ash Wednesday because it's the only day of the year when I know that as the service concludes, as we all spill out onto the sidewalk, every person I walk past on my way home, every one of you that I bump into down in the subway, even later on when the Domino's delivery guy finally makes it up the five flights of stairs to my apartment, hands me my pepperoni pizza with extra cheese, he too, all of them, will see me first as a person marked by faith. And truly, it's not that I want people to think I'm extra pious or some sort of self-righteous Christian. It's just that I suspect for that evening, just that once, people don't see me first as gay or white or whatever it is you think when you look at me. It's the one day of the year when people see me first as a child of God. What if in our freedom, we remembered that the same is true about every person we meet, whether or not their forehead is dusty with ash? What if in our freedom, we chose the spirit loving our neighbors without restrictions, without qualifications, without policing them? What if we chose its fruit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Paul's right. The church is indeed at the center of a conflict of cosmic proportions. But it's not an internal, solitary identity crisis or a question of who belongs to God and who doesn't. It's all about our freedom to choose hate or love, shame or pride, selfish or selfless, flesh or spirit. So what exactly is he talking about? Despite what it means to us, flesh here isn't about bodies, identities, or personalities. And spirit isn't limited to the supernatural or the unembodied. The distinction between flesh and spirit is all about whether we recognize the humanity in one another, the divine spark, the eternal in the other. Flesh is the temptation to deny this truth, to see only what's perishing. Spirit is the call to live into it and to lean into all that will never die. And freedom empowers us to choose the spirit even when everything in our being, our flesh, says not to. The kind of freedom Paul is talking about is a call. It's a responsibility to look beyond the works of the flesh, the works of shame, the works of fragmentation, to see what glory, what goodness lies in the fruit of the Spirit when freedom always considers our neighbor, always bears fruit, always sees others first as children of God. 
A call to freedom is a big responsibility. It will literally take everything we have to rise to the occasion. But here's the good news. And when we're talking spirit, when we're talking Jesus, there's always good news. The good news is that in this great conflict of freedom, choosing spirit means always receiving more of its fruit. More love, more joy, more peace, more patience, more kindness, more generosity, more faithfulness, more gentleness, more self-control. I can't think of anything else our world needs more. I can't promise it will always be easy, simple, or fun. But I can promise that when we freely choose the Spirit, it's always worth it. It always brings new possibilities, new opportunities, new light into our dark world. When we choose the Spirit, love means we no longer choose between us and them. When we choose the Spirit, joy means we no longer choose between gay, lesbian, bi, trans, queer, and Christian. When we choose the Spirit, peace means we no longer choose between justice and forgiveness. When we choose the Spirit, patience means we no longer choose between a gospel that purifies our hearts and one that affirms who we are. When we choose the Spirit, kindness means we no longer choose between my needs and your needs. When we choose the Spirit, generosity means we no longer choose between our freedom and their freedom. When we choose the Spirit, faithfulness means we no longer choose between the realities of earth and the promises of heaven. When we choose the Spirit, Gentleness means we no longer choose between what we know in our hearts is true and listening to the stories of our neighbors. When we choose the Spirit, self-control means we no longer choose between speaking out and loving our enemies. A couple of months ago, probably right around Easter, I stepped outside to gaze up at the, mo the mosaic just above the Fifth Avenue entrance. Something else caught my eye that morning. On one of our signs right next to, this is God's house, all are welcome. Someone had scribbled, except for gay men. This gave me pause. In fact, I shared this finding with several of you. I mean, why would someone write that? It's true that it's only fairly recently that the PCUSA formally solidified their acceptance of LGBTQ plus Christians, but this church and many others across the city have long been celebrating our identities and unique gifting. So I guess the actual question isn't why would someone write that, but who? My guess? Someone who doesn't yet know that this church, whenever we can, however we can, always, by the grace of God, chooses the Spirit and more of its fruit. All of this tells me that our work isn't quite done yet. 
It means we continue to invest in outreach efforts like Wednesdays when a team from this church prepared LGBTQ plus care kits and distributed them to the homeless youth of our neighborhood. It means we continue to prepare meals for the elderly and homebound just as a team did yesterday. It also means that we find new ways even to show our city that this is God's house and all are welcome here until every single one of our neighbors don't just read it on our signs, but know it in their hearts. Simply as I know how to put it, it means that we do what Rachel did. We use our freedom to look for new inspiration, new possibilities for life in our world. Like she did. We use our freedom to keep telling the spirit-filled stories of faith, of giants, of walking on water, of angels, of resurrection of an incarnational, miraculous hope that one day there will be no more tears, no more suffering, no more pain, no more struggle, no more dissensions, factions, enmity, and other works of the flesh. Amen. Friends, go from this place knowing that you are called to freedom. And that in that freedom, you will face a choice, flesh or spirit. But remember that Christ, who has conquered sin and death, goes before you, and that all of us here walk alongside you. Amen. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and provided a message of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you are in New York City, we invite you to visit our historic church and join us for worship. You will find our address, worship calendar, and other information on our website, fapc.org. If you would like to help support this audio ministry, please text the dollar amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646-491-8331. Again, that is the amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646 646- Four nine one eight three three one. Thank you and God bless.